Hey, strangers. Yes, Kurt, your mic is on. <laughs> <laughs> you saw me glance at the side again. <laughs> I did. Uh, thank you for joining us for another episode of The Strange Sessions. I am Krista. With me is Kurt. And uh, I've had a week. Yes. Had a very yes. interesting week. Yes, she did. Uh, if you're following us on social media at all, you know that a tree fell on my house <laughs> earlier this week, but... I think the, it was the government's doing. It was. They're trying they, to they shut used, us down. They used harp to create the, the storm. The straight line wind that came through and took my beautiful, beautiful shade tree down. But you were standing by it when house. it happened, so it could have been worse. It could have been a lot worse. Yes, I was standing on my stoop like, oh, I'm going to watch this storm roll in. And then I heard a crack and I looked over and saw like the the bright yellow innard of the tree, oh. like where it had split, and I saw it start to move, and I'm like, I should probably go inside now. <laughs> it was way more chaotic than that. I thought the hot tree was going to come crashing through like the house and kill us it all. It went through a window. Yeah, it we have no worse. damage to our house. No, it could have been a hundred times all. worse. All that happened, well, I shouldn't say all, but we the power got ripped off of our house. We had live wires in our backyard for several hours, and we didn't have internet or cable, which, of course, is super minor. But we were only without power for like 20 hours. Jim cleaned that whole tree up himself because the stupid tree people didn't call him back until he was already done. So there are people in Milwaukee right now who still do not have power. So we That's are nuts. incredibly lucky. But I'm I'm now the sadness of like my lost tree is sinking in and we're I think we're going to build like a pergola or something back there for shade, but it's just not going to be the same. I have no idea what a pergola it's is. It's like it's like four posts and it has beams over the top. Oh. And you can okay. put like a shade on it. Like but a gazebo. Kind of. It's okay. that idea. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was my excitement for the week. Ugh. I was at home when that storm hit and it got super windy outside because crazy. I was sitting, I think, on my couch and I could see all of a sudden the trees start to wave. They said Milwaukee somewhere hit like 77 mile per hour winds, wow. which is like, that's like approaching hurricane yeah. type that's wind. Nuts. So, yeah. It was crazy. We've had some crazy weather. Today is gorgeous. Yeah, yesterday and no today. No humidity. Both, no, it's perfect. It's actually kind of cool out. Yep. This is my weather. Yeah, it was like 54 this morning when I got up. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. It'll get humid in time for me to start at school again. <laughs> of course. I'm sure. When do you go back to school? Uh, I'm going in one day this week to help Angie with something, and then I think the week after we officially start again. Wow, that went fast. It went super fast. Hmm. I didn't do anything that I intended to do. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're like several episodes ahead research, though, aren't you? I no, thought you were. No, oh. we're, we're at a standstill now. Okay. I know what I'm going to be doing in the very near future. Okay. Uh, but that's about it. Okay. Well. well it's better than nothing. Yeah, we always make it work. Uh, shout outs to our newest strangers, and those are... You sure that's, that's her? That's totally Lucy. I can like a, hear her clicking clacks like on But the... it sounds like a person walking upstairs. I think Jim might be home because oh. she's running to the front door. Okay. Shout outs to our newest strangers and those are... My house is not haunted, Kurt. <laughs> Stop <laughs> it. We're trying to get it haunted. <laughs> no. Just like the school. Anna Verinarth, Dustin Hatfield, Connor Denoon, Mike Wilkerson, Daryl Polinski, and James Pierce. Nice. And I want to give a shout out to, to Chad Bonin. He's my buddy that we went to lunch that day. Oh, yeah. And he had nothing but good things to say about the podcast. Aww, that's sweet. You know, and he's like, I'm not just saying this because you're my friend, but he said, that's a damn good podcast. Aww. So thank you so much, Chad. That's really We're sweet. We're going to be getting together again for lunch next week because lunch is what I do. That's that's my thing. Lunch is your thing. Yeah. Oh, we totally forgot to mention, if you don't want to sit through this part of the show, <laughs> wow, we're terrible at this. <laughs> Check the show notes. Kurt's going to post a timestamp for when the actual topic starts. Sorry, yep. we forgot to mention that. Yep. Now, but. Um, should we talk about coffee? 
one of our favorite yeah. topics. Well, talk- before you start that, I want to say okay. that our next episode. Oh yes. Our next episode that we're going to our official like our ofi- our well our next episode is going to be a preview of what our side sessions are like. Yep. Now Jim's home. Now Jim's home. <laughs> it's going to be a preview of what our side sessions episodes are like. So it's already been recorded like a month ago. <laughs> I don't even really remember recording it. Vaguely. Vaguely. But it's going to be released for the in two weeks on the usual schedule. Mm-hmm. And then after that, after that two weeks, it's going to be our 100th episode. So I think that's the one that's co- going to be released on September 5th. Ye- no. Because we're not recording we're the twenty first. Rec- we're the recording t- the tenth. Oh, the, uh, or the eleventh. Okay. We're recording the eleventh. September 11th. So it'll come out the twelfth. Yes. Okay. That will be our one hundredth episode. So we, what we would really love is for you guys just in the next couple weeks to send us voicemails, uh, emails about what the podcast has meant to you, or. Mm-hmm. How it's affected your life, if it has your favorite moments, your favorite from the moments, show. your least favorite moments from the show. Uh, but we'd you love to take get, it. We would love to get voicemails <laughs> from you guys. We would love just any kind of letters. Yeah, letters. You can message us on Facebook. You can send us email. Uh, we just want to, you know, say in that episode we want to talk. It's just going to be like a conversational episode where we're just going to talk about the podcast. And I think Kayla said she was going to. She wanted to bake us a cake that would double as a taste test. So I'll have to reach out That's to her. So awesome. As well. Yeah. Hopefully she doesn't decorate it with those uh salt those dunder, dunder salts. Dunder salts. It's so weird to me that there's people that love No kidding. The dunder Didn't salt. Eric they, say that's yeah, like one Eric of his did. favorites? Yeah, Whoa. it's just I Whoa. don't I don't get it. No. But yes, either. now you can talk about the coffee or coffee. Kofi. As we I call, call it, it. Kofi, but I think it's coffee. <laughs> so start not I'm very excited because now we have membership tiers. Um, and we're going to make this all effective September 1st, but I'm going to tell you what the three tiers are. And we decided to, because all of our monthly subscribers are either at $3, $5 or 10. So we decided to make those the tiers so that we wouldn't have to make anyone pay a little more to yeah. get into one of the tiers, etc. So the first tier is $3. It's called Simply Strange. And with that tier... You get um, access to the unedited episodes like you do now, a video version of the taste test, and behind-the-scenes photos, videos. So that's tier number one, $3, called Simply Strange. And the next tier is $5. And that one is called Seriously Strange. And with that one, you get everything that you do in the first tier, but then we also are adding a side session. Mm. So that one just gets you one extra episode a month plus all the stuff you get with the first level. And then the third tier, um, which is the $10 tier, if I can get to it, is called Super Strange. And with that one, you get everything again that you get with the first two tiers, but you get an extra side session per month. So for $10 a month, you're getting two extra I think that episodes. basically they're going to have an episode every week then because the off weeks are going to be side, side sessions, sessions released. Yeah. And again, these the side sessions are basically they're about 45 half an minutes hour to 45 long. minutes. Yeah. If you don't want to pay for them, you are not missing anything. I mean, you're, you're, right. you're still getting this content that we're doing all the time you're getting the every other week strange sessions episode yeah but we're this never is gonna just, stop that we wanted a bonus for people that that gave 
monthly. Because it seems like people want to subscribe whether they get content or yeah, not, but, but we, we feel did, like we, we need to provide content. to give content. you content. So you get, and to be honest with you, and this isn't me shilling our side sessions, but I'm really liking doing the side sessions yeah, episodes. I'm enjoying it too. I already have like a big list at home of stuff I want to talk about. And Even also... The one we're recording right after this, I think is really interesting and it's something that I never heard of. Oh, cool. But it involves a book and then kind of like a philosophy and a lifestyle. It's oh. it's... Okay. It's kind of right up my alley. So, um, again, for the top tier, though, when another thing that will be included is when we finally get around to full video episodes. Yes. So We're working on that. Yeah. So you will get quite a bit extra for that $10. Up. You'll get two extra side sessions and a full video episode, plus all the other stuff that the other tiers are getting. For so pl- that's, again, effective September 1st. The platinum tier is like 10000 a month. For that, Krista <laughs> and I will come and just hang out at your house for a week. Yeah. I'll leave my lucky we'll podcasting underwear laying on your couch. <laughs> so we'll, we'll be really rude. <laughs> yep. Inconsiderate. Plug up the toilet. Oh, that's <laughs> that's oh, no. Good times. Um... So taste test, huh? Taste test. So time. now we gotta rearrange. So this is <laughs> this is so awkward. Okay, let me just test the audio. Ready. 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 Okay. Okay. So where is the Mexican stuff? Oh, we're gonna do that first. <laughs> yeah. You gotta get that out oh, of the way. I can. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that because I think this will be decent. I'm sure. This is probably gonna be spicy. Whatever it is, it seems probably. to be the. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find something that something that feels delicious. Well, like they're all individual candies, so it's hard to find something oh, that we could split. Split or like suckers. I'm sure they're probably spicy. Is that like one thing? That that's one thing. See so if you can find another thing that looks like it. Maybe another flavor. I'm waiting oh, to our our coffee supporters. Yay! Ooh, all two. right. Rellerindos. <laughs> Rellerindos. Okay. Let me take. Where'd my phone go? Oh, I left it over there. Oh, God. Oh, oh God. We'll get better at this, I swear. Uh, what? What does it say? Kurt's already upset. Rellerindos. I love the little mascot. He says, I am feeling fine. But Rellerindos are artificially flavored tamarind acidulated hard candy with chili pepper oh, flavoring. Come on. All right. Well, filling chili pepper filling. Filling. Oh, so there's like weird. Look at it. They probably can't see that. That's oh, weird. It even smells funky. So, do we have to like bite into it to get to the innards? No, I think we suck on it. It smells like like fruit. Fig. It smells like, like a fig. fruit roll up or something. Okay, are you ready? Okay, the other side is good. Mm-hmm. It's going to take forever. <laughs> it is. I mean, the outside's not bad. It just tastes like... No, but I'm mentally preparing myself for what's on the inside. Pretty hard candy. Yeah, we're going to be here till tomorrow, though. <laughs> That's a big old piece of candy. It is. I feel like I want to bite into it, though, to get to the center. Mm-mm. I'm sucking away like crazy. This is riveting. Oh, now I'm getting some weird stuff, though. As you get deeper into it... I'm not getting any weirdness mm. yet. It's still fruity. But I'm sucking hard. It has that same... <laughs> kind of weird flavor profile as that red licorice stuff. 
Now I'm starting There's to get, something savory about it. I'm starting it. to get a change now. I really think this is going to take a really long time. That's all right. Yeah, this is weird. We should have done this last, and I could have did an episode while we were doing this. Yeah. You must be farther in it than I am, because you're making faces. Is it's it not... getting kind of gritty? Yeah. It's not, like, smooth anymore. Well, it's like... It's like standing away the top of my mouth. Yeah. Yeah, it's not biteable. You can't, like, bite into it. Sorry, you guys watching this. It's not very exciting. Are you expecting it to have, like, a liquid filling or some kind of chewy filling? <laughs> I don't know. That's part of the mystery. If it like, mm. if it's, like, a liquid and it, like, squirts chili sauce in my mouth i'm gonna be <laughs> i'm not gonna be happy yeah yeah you it's not like you cannot bite this it's candy. gritty and it's like hurting oh. my i just bit it in half <gasps> there's no filling Mm-mm. no there's no filling it's just solid candy all the way through i'm not getting spicy though Mm-mm. not at all there's no heat to it at all is it just the flavor of it chili might, but it said it said chili Chili pepper filling. Mm-mm. It's actually not bad. Mm-mm. I'm just going to eat it. <laughs> I will be here all day. Sorry, this is so annoying, probably. It's not that bad. Mm-mm. I mean, I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't choose to eat it, but I don't. I might. I mean, it's. it's. Oh, and now I'm getting a little bit of heat. I didn't get I got any like heat. a real tiny bit. I got no heat, and I'm like. Almost done with it. Oh, a little bit now. Yeah. Okay, at the back of your throat. Yeah. Hmm, but not like on a... Oh, it's sour though. <laughs> yeah. No, that's pretty... What uh, would you give that out of 10? Hmm. I'd give it like a 6. I'd give it a 7. I, I kind of like it. Surprisingly, I didn't think I would, but I kind of do. I feel like I need a palate cleanser. <laughs> I'm going to take a drink of water. I mean, that wasn't... That was better than any of the other... Ones we've gotten from. That I'm still thing. sucking on mine, so I might hit hit spice before too long. But mm. I, there's just a little bit of burn. I think if you feel that burn at the back of your throat, that's the worst it's going to be. Oh, I can handle. This. Mine's gone. I can handle this. Mine's not gone, but I'm going to keep working on it while we eat the next thing. That is a strong. Do you want to spit it out while you taste the next thing? No, I'm good. Because this requires a lot of chewing. I'm going to open one of the Middle Eastern candies. From my friend Jill, who lives in Oman. I can multitask with my mouth. Wow. Did you hear that, ladies? <laughs> um, so this looks like it has pistachios, which should be okay for you, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. I kind of like this. Let me take a picture. Huh. That's a shocker. I'm not going to say I like it, but it's not gross. And we're sure those are pistachios? Yeah, they look like pistachios. And I think all of them have been pistachios so far. Okay. Yeah, that looks like pistachios to me. Yeah, they didn't come with like a wrapper. Hmm. I'm guessing this is going to be really gingery again. I kind of smell ginger. I'm going to take this out. Okay, you ready? Yeah, ready. Mm -hmm. Very gingery. Mm -hmm. They're not overly sweet. Hmm. Interesting. That was really gingery. Mm-hmm. Like real ginger. That was good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I really like that. I would give that an 8 out of 10 because that was really good. Yeah. I like that. I give it an 8 too. I like that it's really chewy, but there's two different textures. Yeah. The outside rind yeah. thing had a texture. The mm. outside rind thing, I think it was like a burrito shell. Kind of. That was really good. Yeah, I think so too. Mm. Mm. There haven't been any of the Middle Eastern candies I haven't liked yet. No. So we have one more left to try. We'll save that for next time mm, that's really good i really like that that's a palate cleanser the i don't ginger, know how to describe it but i really like no, it it's not overly sweet it's very heavy on ginger yeah has a little sweet afterbite, but i like the texture it's kind of um i can't really explain the texture though it's like a jelly kind of mm -hmm. huh i like that good back to my sucking oh my god i don't think i video i <laughs> I never hit record on the video. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's okay. It's too late now. We yeah. already tasted everything. Oh my god! This whole time we're talking to the camera. Hey guys, <laughs> if you're listening to the unedited episode. Oh good lord! I can't believe I did that. Yes, I can. Oh my god! We went through all this trouble. And I never hit record. Nope. That's how we learn. <sighs> now next time I'll be asking you, did you hit record? Yes, please do. What <laughs> What are you going to edit out? Me saying, oh my god, I didn't return the recorder. No, I'll leave that on. Okay. Sorry, what? we'll get better. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Ugh. This is what makes us us. Me, what is on my pants? <laughs> Me forgetting to hit record on the video. I spl <laughs> splashed coffee all up in my face. It's going to be one of those days. It's going to be one of those episodes. Um. <clears throat> I took out my candy because it was Dumpster just taking fire. too long to suck. Yeah. <coughs> okay, so sorry, coffee people, but you're going to have an extra video tour of the studio. You're going to have to get a so video tour of the studio. and in replacement of the uh, taste test that you didn't get yeah. to see. But it was actually a good taste the test. So yeah, so they People prefer the bad ones. They do. Oh, funny. Are we ready? I'm ready. What time are we at? 30 minutes. <laughs> okay. It's It'll be 20. Of, yeah. Yeah. There was at a, least I'll, well, I'll take out a lot of the sucking sounds. Yeah, and there was at least six minutes of pre-show. Yeah, so. okay. are we ready to jump in? Ugh, yes. Good thing you're running. <laughs> Krista's all mad at herself because she I'm forgot so to record. Mad. Well, that's good because now I'll remind you. Is it good. recording? Is it recording? Thank you. You're welcome. I should have done that today, but again, we need a board that says we need a board behind me. Yeah, that says um, timestamp of episode. Yes, hit is record. There, is, the, <laughs> is, the is the camera recording? On? camera's out it just wasn't recording because i'm a dupa <laughs> dupa are we ready i am ready okay we are jumping into today's main topic which is we had to get to it sooner or later doing a paranormal podcast it is the bermuda triangle woot, woot. and before we were recording i told krista i'm not super into the bermuda triangle and i feel like i don't do as good a job when i'm really not into a topic i guess but here we go the story of the Bermuda Triangle is an interesting one. We're going to look a little bit at the history of the phenomenon, and then we're going to look at a couple individual occurrences there. Okay. The Bermuda Triangle, also known as the Devil's Triangle, is it's way bigger than I thought. It's a 500,000 square mile section of the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Florida, where unusual activity is said to happen. 500,000 square miles is pretty big. What do, So could, is there... I should have... Can we Google this? Is there like a state that equates that same amount? I kind of need like a visual of what that looks like. Um, 500,000 square 500, miles. 500,000. Wow. Let me look. That 500. is a lot. That's big. 
500,000 square miles. The um, Michigan Triangle, Lake Michigan Triangle is not quite that big. Alaska is 570,000 square miles. So it's kind of the size of Alaska. So it's a little pretty bit. big. Yeah, yeah that's so really it's, big. It's pretty big. Okay. Thank you. I, it helps to have a... Is that right, though? I feel like I feel like that's Alaska's too big. It says square mile land area. Texas is only 261,000, so it's bigger than Texas. Wow. Yeah. That doesn't seem right to me, but that's what Google says. Okay. Google can't be wrong. According to the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, one of the first writers to look into this was reporter E.V.W. Jones, who published an article in 1950 talking about all the ships and planes that had disappeared off the coast of Florida. The name Bermuda Triangle was coined in 1964 by writer Vincent Gaddis in the men's pulp magazine Argosy, where the triangle's three points were said to be Miami, Florida... That's obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Where the triangle's three points were said to be Miami, Florida... I knew I was going to do that as I was writing this stupid thing too. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to include that as the second one. And I knew I was going to do it. And damn it, I did it. Oh, I'm mad at myself. I should have changed it on my thing. These were recording. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I'm just going to leave that in there. The triangle's three points are said to be Miami, Florida, Puerto Rico, and the Isle of Bermuda. Reports of strange disappearances and phenomena in the area stretch back centuries, as we will see in a bit. But the whole Bermuda Triangle phenomenon really blew up and became a thing in 1974 when writer Charles Berlitz wrote a book called The Bermuda Triangle. I had this book when I was a kid, and when the book came out, it was huge. I remember I remember that. I mean, I was young at the time, because it came out in 74, and I want to say I had it in the late, I got it in the late 70s. Okay. So I must have been like 9 or 10, mm-hmm. but even then I was, was like still... fascinated by paranormal stuff. Yeah. But it was just huge, and the Bermuda Triangle was everywhere in the in you the seventies. You don't hear 70s. about it as much now. No, but it was everywhere in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, it was on In Search of. You remember the show In Search of yep. with Leonard Nimoy? Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, I remember being in the grocery store with my parents, and at the checkouts, they always had those little books you could buy, mm-hmm. and they always had paranormal themed ones. It was like scary top scary stories of the Bermuda Triangle and stuff like that, and I think. The 70s was like an era when paranormal stuff sold and people played pretty fast and loose with the validity of this stuff. Yeah. But I remember when this book came out, it was a huge book by Charles Berlitz. In the book, Berlitz talked about the disappearances and stuff that happened there and talked about possible theories, including time vortexes and the idea that what was going on at the Triangle was a byproduct of the destruction of Atlantis. The problem with all this, though, is that Berlitz kind of played fast and loose with the facts in the book. Is that where Atlantis? That's I, not where some Atlantis think is supposed to be. Is there's it? like that Bimini, and that's like by Bermuda. There's oh. that Bimini wall or whatever, and people some. But there's people that think that uh, Atlantis was in Lake Michigan too. So there's everybody's got their <laughs> different. True. We're gonna have to do an episode about Atlantis at some point. Definitely. Yeah. A year after Berlitz's book came out, writer and researcher Larry, and it's K-U-S-C-H-E. Is that Kush? Kush? K-U-S-C-H-E. I'm going to say Kush. Kush? Yeah. Researcher Larry Kush published his book called The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved, basically refuting the evidence from Berlitz's book. A September 25th, 2012 LiveScience.com article called, quote, Bermuda Triangle, Where Facts Disappear, 
says, quote, in his definitive book, The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved, Cush notes that few writers on the topic bothered to do any real investigation. They mostly collected and repeated each other and repeated earlier writers who did the same thing. Unfortunately, Charles Berlitz's facility with language did not carry over into credible research or scholarship. His books on the paranormal and on the Bermuda Triangle specifically were riddled with errors, mistakes, and unscientific crank theories. In a way, the Bermuda Triangle is largely a creation of Charles Berlitz's mistakes. Cush would later, I love this, Cush would later note that Berlitz's research was so sloppy that, quote, if Berlitz were to report that a boat were red, the chance of it being some other color is almost a certainty. <laughs> what a burn that is. Dang. Yeah. Uh, the, re- the reality is that the whole Bermuda Triangle phenomenon is kind of overblown and factually iffy, and it really kind of is. So Josh Gates did an episode yeah. on it, and yeah. I remember kind of him walking away going, eh, I mean, yeah. yep. there's not a whole lot of evidence to support it. No, being but, some kind but of what that article said is like on, on the dot where, is that a saying where it's on the dot? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> that it's, I think, it's pretty accurate that... Yeah. Uh, Hits the nail on the head. Yeah. That a lot of stuff that we believe about the Bermuda Triangle came from this really factually iffy book. Mm, right. and. You know, that scene is like one of the cornerstones of the Bermuda Triangle phenomena. And it's been proven that that stuff that in, in his book, it's real shaky. Okay. So the fact that the Bermuda Triangle is even a thing is kind of just because of that one faulty book. The Argosy article defined the boundaries of the triangle as Miami, Florida, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. Subsequent writers did not necessarily follow this definition. Some writers gave different boundaries and vertices to the triangle, with the total area varying anywhere from 500,000 square miles to 1,510,000 square miles, sometimes moving a point of the triangle as far away as Ireland. Oh, come on. <laughs> that's that's, that's ridiculous. It's kind of a long ways away. Consequently, the determination of which accidents occurred inside the triangle depends on which writer reported them. But that being said, a lot of planes and ships do go missing there. They really do. Uh, like more than anywhere else, though? That's the thing. Mm. I can say there's far more traffic accidents every day in Texas than there are in Wisconsin. But the population Because Texas is, is bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, one of the first people to... Are we going to poo-poo on the Bermuda Triangle? I think we're kind of... We're, well, I think we're going to kind of poo-poo on okay. it. Not as bad as we poo-pooed on Flat Earth. Okay. Or uh, the Paulding Light. But one of the first people to like kind of... Like when people talk about the Bermuda Triangle, one of the first go-to people is Christopher Columbus. The story goes that the compass Columbus and his crew were using went crazy when they entered the Bermuda Triangle area. According to the website AnomalyInfo.com, the original log of Christopher Columbus's voyages had not survived for anyone to read. Similarly, his personal diary of the voyage has also been lost. What most everyone actually means when they say Columbus's log is a copy of the log and diary made by a man named Bartolome de la Casas. And he made this sometime in the 1530s. He wrote a book called the Diary, the uh, Diario. <laughs> Not to be confused. I, I had Diario the other day. <laughs> wrote the Diario of Christopher Columbus's verse vote. <laughs> Sorry, I cracked myself up. Sometime, sometime in the 1530s, Bartolome wrote Bartolome, Bartolome. Sometime in the 1530s, Bart. sometimes sometime in the 1530s, Bartolome wrote the Diario of Christopher Columbus's first voyage to America. Let's look at the original report. The diary note for Monday, September 17th, 1492, says, quote, "The pilots took the north, marking it. 
and the pilots took a sight on the North Star and compared it with the compass bearing to make sure they were going the right way and found that the compasses northwested a full point more and the sailors were fearful and depressed and did not say why. The admiral was aware of this and he ordered that the north again be marked when dawn came and they found that the compasses were then correct. The cause was that the north star appeared to move and not the compasses. Hmm. So this one little passage in there, uh, you know, kind of set the the tone for that Columbus had problems in the Bermuda Triangle. Sailors from Europe used to working north of the equator typically knew how to find a north star in the night sky to help determine their headings and compasses always pointed to the north star to help confirm its usefulness and the reason for its name. When they sailed closer to the equator, however, magnetic north and the placement of the north star in the night sky no longer coincided, and the further south they sailed, the greater the difference between true north and the position of the star became. This situation is what Columbus's sailors were distraught over. Should they trust the star's position or the compass's position? Columbus was already facing the very real possibility of mutiny and decided to calm his crew immediately. He ordered a check of the compass headings at dawn and they were able to compare them and they knew what location the sun was going to rise at. So they established that the compasses were still pointing correctly north to the satisfaction of the crew. So what they were freaking out about was that there was a difference, but that's a thing when you get near the equator and south of the equator. This event became characterized as bizarre and unknown energies in the Bermuda Triangle, causing Columbus's compasses to spin wildly. And they didn't spin wildly. You know, the, like it's a lot of the stories about compasses or about Christopher Columbus's compass was that it was like spinning wildly when they got down there. And it wasn't. It was just off a little bit because of this variance in the, the north and okay. the north star. Hmm. Yeah, the compass story was already being over-dramatized as early as 1792 when Jedediah Morse wrote this in his book, The American Geography. Quote, on the 14th of September, Columbus was astonished to find that the magnetic needle... I'm not having a good time today. Astonished? Astonished. (laughs) (laughs) On the 14th of September, Columbus was astonished to find that the magnetic needle in the compass did not point exactly to the North Star, but varied towards the West. And as they proceeded southward, this variation increased. This new phenomenon filled the companions of Columbus with sheer terror. Nature itself seemed to have sustained change, and the only guide they had left to point them to a safe retreat from an unbounded and trackless ocean was about to fail them. Columbus, with no less quickness than ingenuity, assigned a reason for this appearance, which, though it did not satisfy himself, seemed so plausible to his men that it dispelled their fears and silenced their murmurs. So obviously that's a little over-dramatized. I mean, it was what happened was something that typically happens. Okay. And it's just got blown way out of proportion. Well, and they probably didn't have much of a point of reference at that time, right? No. You know, they didn't. They didn't know that this was typical. This became even more extreme in 1841 when Washington Irving published his well-known biography of Columbus. In it, he wrote, quote, On the 13th of September in the evening, being about 200 leagues from the island of Faroe, Columbus for the first time noticed a variation of the needle, a phenomenon which had never before been seen. He perceived about nightfall that the needle, instead of pointing to the North Star, varied about half a point, or between five and six degrees to the northwest, and still more on the following morning. Struck with this circumstance, he observed it attentively for three days, and found that the variation increased as he advanced. He at first made no mention of this to his men, knowing how ready his people were to take alarm, but it soon attracted the attention of the pilots and filled them with dread. It seemed as if the very laws of nature were changing as they advanced and that they were entering another world, subject to unknown influences. 
They apprehended that the compass was about to lose its mysterious virtues, and without this guide, what was to become of them in a vast and trackless ocean? Columbus tasked his science and ingenuity for reasons with which to allay their terror. He observed that the direction of the needle was not to the polar star, but to some fixed and invisible point. The variation, therefore, was not caused by any fallacy in the compass, but by the movement of the North Star itself, which, like the other heavenly bodies, had its changes and revolutions. Mm-hmm. So it's constantly getting, you know, blown out of proportion that his his people were freaking out that there was some otherworldly thing that was turning the compass around, and, and it wasn't. It was just... It was just the way it is. Right. When you, went, you know, so that... that Natural rotation That is of one of the, the things people point yeah. at and say, well, Columbus, his his uh, compass was going all jangle-dangle on him and stuff. And <laughs> Kitty Wampus. Wampus, <laughs> and it wasn't. Um, another one, another famous uh, phenomena from the Bermuda Triangle we'll actually talk about in another episode, but that is the Mary Celeste. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about that in another episode. But another one that's interesting is... A schooner with the name Ellen Austin. And this is kind of an interesting story. It's usually known by the name, the Ellen Austin story, but the Ellen Austin isn't the ship that vanished. The story goes that the schooner Ellen Austin left London on December 5th, 1880, headed for New York. Several weeks into its journey, the Ellen Austin came across an unidentified schooner drifting in the area of the Bermuda Triangle, just sitting in the ocean and drifting in an erratic path. The captain's first thought was that it might be a pirate trap of some kind, so they just shadowed the ship for a few days. They moved up within hailing distance and called out to the ship, but nobody answered. The captain and four of his men then rowed to the boat and boarded it, only to find it completely empty of people. According to an article on the sometimes interesting website called The Ellen Austin Encounter, quote, Upon inspection, the vessel appeared to be shipshape and in reasonably well-maintained condition. Its sails were furled and tattered from exposure, but the vessel's rigging was intact. There was no sign of any violence, nor was there any sign of a crew. The only things missing were the ship's log and its nameplates, which for some reason had been removed from the bow. Two of the Ellen Austin crewmen inspected the abandoned ship's hold and reported that it contained a well-packed shipment of mahogany. Captain Baker speculated the schooner had likely been sailing from the Honduras, possibly bound for England or a Mediterranean port, before something must have convinced the crew to evacuate quickly. The circumstances were indeed curious. However, the captain was intrigued by the salvage opportunity of this otherwise fine ship. So they board it, find the ship in great shape with super expensive mahogany in the hold and the entire crew missing. So, of course, the captain decides to bring the ship with them so he can sell the mahogany. So the captain sends some of the crew to pilot that ship, and the two ships together start heading back to New York, moving within hailing distance of each other. A few days later, there's a huge storm, and the two ships get separated. After two days, the storm clears, and the second ship is nowhere to be found. Then after a while, the captain spots the ship through his eyeglass, and the Ellen Austin heads towards it. It's once again just sitting still in the water. According to the sometimes interesting article, quote, Captain Baker ordered his ship to change course so they would intercept his salvage opportunity. Those on board the Ellen Austin knew something was wrong. The abandoned vessel was reportedly sailing so erratic that it took hours to catch up to her. When the Ellen Austin closed in on the schooner, the captain and his men attempted to hail the ship, but no answer came. Baker assembled an inspection team and quickly rode to the cryptic ship. Once again, the men boarded with guns drawn. Of the prize crew, they found nothing. No one was on board. The cargo hold was still full and most everything else was in order, except there was no sign that Baker's crew had ever been on the ship. That's no, weird. no food was missing. 
Uh, the bunks had not been slept in, and the new logbook left by Captain Baker upon the vessel's first discovery had also disappeared. And it was at, it was almost like the encounter between Alan Austin and the derelict had never happened. Except all the people were missing. Still wanting the money for the cargo, the captain finally persuaded some scared crew members. <laughs> Just imagine, they're like, I'm not going to that ship. Hell no. <laughs> he finally persuaded some scared crew members once again to go pilot the ship. According to the site, quote, as the men readied the derelict for sailing back to New York, the weather once again turned bad. This time a dense fog settled across the water, lowering a cloud of thick mist, reducing visibility to mere feet. And they're still within the border of the, the triangle. triangle yep. okay. Again, the Ellen Austin's lookout lost sight of the second ship. On this day, the seas were not treacherous. It's like Groundhog Day. <laughs> <laughs> On this day, the seas were not treacherous. However, such poor visibility separated the two vessels and brought the Ellen Austin to a standstill. For hours, the men tried to peer through the fog, scanning the waters, looking for any trace of the other ship. When the fog finally lifted, the lookout was the first to shout, she's gone. As the legend goes, the Ellen Austin never witnessed the derelict or its second crew ever again. Captain Baker's schooner continued on to New York, where it arrived sometime late in February of 1881. So that's that story is like given a lot. That showed up a lot in my... So it's never seen again? Nope. So wow. it showed up a Could lot. Could just be made up. Then. It showed up a lot in my <laughs> research of, of scariest stories of the Bermuda Triangle. But according to an article on Skeptoid.com, quote, The first appearance of the Ellen Austin story in print seems to be one from 1906 in a South Dakota newspaper, the Daily Deadwood Pioneer Times. The short paragraph gave only the name of the ship, the year, and the vanishings of the two crews and no other details. That omission of other details is important, as the most influential telling of the story came from a 1946 book called The Stargazer Talks, summarizing the radio broadcast of Lieutenant Commander Rupert Gould, who told a version of the Ellen Austin story in October 1935. We would not be too far off to guess that the Deadwood Pioneer Times story was his only source, for the reason that all other details he gave in his radio broadcast were wrong. The name of the captain was wrong, the ship's destination and ownership was wrong, etc., the most likely reason they were all wrong is that Gould made most of them up to flesh out the story. It wasn't until later that authors began to apply modern research techniques, like searching through newspaper records or old book records, that we began to collect the true details, which are mixed in with the wrong details in today's Bermuda Triangle versions of the story. However, we can speculate all we want about this. There is one more fact given in the Lloyds of London records that tells all we need to know about the Ellen Austin and the Phantom Derelict and the vanished crew members that piloted the Derelict only to vanish. According to Lloyds, the number of casualties suffered by the Ellen Austin on the 1880-1881 voyage from Liverpool to New York was zero. Everyone who boarded the ship made it safely to New York. <laughs> there was no missing crew and certainly no Aww. second missing crew. I mean, I'm not disappointed, no, but it's like... but yeah. Whether or not the Ellen Austin did encounter a derelict ship on that trip is not recorded in any surviving documents, but it's certainly perfectly plausible. So far as any other details of the story go, they are certainly perfectly pure fiction. Hmm. The nameless phantom derelict and its tendency to gobble up sailors is just another fake, astonishing tale of the sea. And I feel like I've heard that story before. Yeah, I have too. And then it's like, you know... But that's the thing is like you want it to be true. Kind of because it's like, mysterious. Yeah, and you don't want it somebody to, to go. You don't want somebody to go find out that the entire crew made it to New York. Because right. then that, that shows that none of that happened. Right. You I know? mean, we don't want people to go missing and die, but yeah. it, it sort of ruins the mystery. So, eh, on that one. Yeah. And Poo -poo. it stinks because it was such a good story. Yeah. And of course, the, the second, uh, the, this is probably the most famous of the 
Bermuda Triangle stuff is Flight 19. Mm. From a September 1st, 2018 article on historicmysteries.com called, quote, Flight 19 Disappearance, Most Likely Cause, and a September 1st, 2018 article on history.com called, quote, The Mysterious Disappearance of Flight 19, the articles say that at 2.10 p.m. on December 5th, 1945, five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers took off from a naval air station in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The planes, collectively known as Flight 19, and I never knew that. I never knew that they called a group Multiple of planes. planes? Yeah, no, a I didn't either. The planes, collectively known as Flight 19, were scheduled to tackle a three-hour exercise known as, quote, navigation problem number one. Their triangular flight plan called for them to head east from the Florida coast and conduct bombing runs at a place called Hens and Chickens Shoals, <laughs> which is a cool name. I'm guessing it's a shoal that nothing there. lived there but hens and chickens. Yeah. Sounds delightful. They would then, after the bombing raid, they would then turn north and proceed over the Grand Bahama Island before changing course a third time and flying southwest back to base. Save for one plane that only carried two men. Each of the Avengers was crewed by three Navy men or Marines, most of whom had logged around 300 hours in the air. The flight's leader was Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor, an experienced pilot and veteran of several combat missions in World War II's Pacific Theater. Taylor himself had about 2,500 flying hours, mostly in aircraft of this type, so it wasn't like his first rodeo. Mm -hmm. He knew what he was doing. They dropped their practice bombs without incident, but then somewhere over the Atlantic, they ran into bad weather. Flight instructor Lieutenant Robert F. Cox was on another flight in the area and is the person who overheard many of Flight 19's final radio transmissions. At 3.40 p.m., Cox heard one of the pilots from the Flight 19 radioing about being lost, so Cox radioed back to them and asked them what was going on. Taylor radioed back and said, quote, Both of my compasses are out, and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I am over land, but it's broken. I what am is, I'm sorry, what year is it again? 1940. Much more modern, in other words. Oh, yeah. This is Better like, understanding This is like 45. How, this is okay. 1945. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Taylor radioed back and said, quote, Both of my compasses are out, and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I am over land, but it's broken. I am sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get back to Fort Lauderdale. And Flight 19 wasn't in the Keys. It was about 200 miles north of the Keys. Oh. It's believed that Taylor was confused about where he was, partly because he was new to the area, which I get. It's I mean, a little scary, and he's flying a plane. And both his, his compasses are out, mm -hmm. and he doesn't know where he is. Cox then advised Taylor to put the sun on his port wing and fly north up the coast to Fort Lauderdale. The problem was, Taylor had become so disoriented that he believed he was at the mouth of the Gulf of Mexico, so he thought flying west would bring them further into the Gulf. So instead of turning left and flying back to Fort Lauderdale, he ordered his men to continue flying east, bringing them further out into the open ocean. Oh, no. Yep. Around this time, one of the crew members could be heard on the radio saying, quote, Damn it, if we could just fly west, we would get home. Head west, damn it. So it sounds like they knew what was going on, but because of military discipline, they had to follow their commander. Ugh. And that's knowing they're like being led down, knowing the path that they're of going doom. farther out over the ocean instead of back to Florida, which is where they want to go. And like, I don't, I've never been in the military, no. but I, I'm sure there's a point where I'd be like, yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm going this way. Yeah. You're and on I'd your own, buddy. Get court martialed, <laughs> but that's just, but you'd be alive. <laughs> but this was the forties and people like followed their officer. Sure. Like if the officer said, you do that, you do that. Mm-hmm. As mm. the sun began to set, Lieutenant Taylor ordered his men to begin preparing for a water landing. He said over the radio, quote, all planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. 
Then Taylor called in his last transmission saying, quote, We can't tell where we are. Everything is, can't make out anything. We think we may be about 225 miles northeast of base. It looks like we are entering white water. We're completely lost. And that was the last that was ever heard from them. I can't imagine that feeling. No, I can't either. I can't either. So just like impending doom. You know you're in real trouble. You know you're screwed. Yeah. So a few planes and ships were sent out to search. A PBM-5 Mariner took off to search for them at 1927 from the Banana River Naval Air Station, and it called in a routine radio message at 1930, and then after that, that plane and its 13-man crew was never heard from again. But at 1950, the tanker SS Gaines Mills reported seeing a mid-air explosion, then flames leaping 100 feet high and burning on the sea for 10 minutes. The escort carrier USS Solomons also reported losing radar contact with an aircraft in the same position and time. So it's kind of weird that this plane that was sent out to look for them went down. It didn't mm-hmm. go down. It, it sounds like it just blew up in the air. Right. Because they saw they saw the explosion, the explosion. and they saw the burning oil or gas on the on the ocean. So it's just weird that that plane went down too. Mm-hmm. Uh, no trace was ever found of Flight 19. Uh, they just vanished. Navy Lieutenant David White later recalled, quote, We had hundreds of planes out looking and we searched over land and water for days and nobody ever found any bodies or any debris. Including the mariner that went out to look for them, 27 men lost their lives. Wow. So this reminds me, I just, the, I think it was one of the later episodes of Expedition Unknown, right? Yeah. yeah. I always want to say Destination Truth and I know that's not right. Um, Josh joins a team of people who have banded together to search for military people who have gone missing during training exercises because yeah. they are not considered missing in action. Yeah. And nobody looks for them. Oh, I believe that. I totally they believe that. They only look for people who were like um, missing during like a war or something like that. So yeah. there are thousands and thousands of people in this, like these people, they would look for people like this because they went missing during a training exercise. Yeah. Nobody's looking for them no. anymore. No. And I, I believe that. Yeah. Like It's sad though. It is sad. They but, were still, and to me, they they were still in. They were on duty. They were missing in action. Yeah. They should be found. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. That makes me mad. But you know, this Weird this is like note. the one that when people talk about the Bermuda Triangle, this Flight 19 is the one. This mm-hmm. is this is what everybody. Anytime there's a a documentary on Bermuda Triangle, there's a reenactment of this. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the Navy released an investigation report a few months later saying that Taylor had mistakenly believed that the small islands he passed over were the Florida Keys, that his flight was over the Gulf of Mexico, and that heading northeast would take them to Florida. It was determined that Taylor had passed over the Bahamas as scheduled, and he did in fact lead his flight to the northeast over the Atlantic. The report noted that some subordinate officers did likely know their approximate position, as indicated by radio transmissions, stating that flying west would result in finally reaching the mainland. It's also said that Taylor was not at fault because the compasses had stopped working and that the loss of the PBM-5 that went to look for them was just attributed to a mid-air explosion. So mm-hmm. it just blew up in the air, Bummer. I guess. Even if the lost patrol didn't fall victim to the supernatural, there's no denying that its disappearance was accompanied by many oddities and unanswered questions. Perhaps the strangest of all concerns Lieutenant Taylor. Witnesses later claimed that he arrived to Flight 19's pre-exercise briefing several minutes late and requested to be excused from leading the mission. He supposedly said, quote, I just don't want to take this one out. Just why Taylor tried to get out of flying remains a mystery, but it has led many to suggest that he may have not been fit for duty, mm-hmm. that maybe he was mm-hmm. drunk or, mm-hmm. or something. 
also unex- not mentally prepared. Yeah. Also unexplained is why none of the members of Flight 19 made use of the rescue radio frequency or their plane's ZBX receivers, which could have helped lead them towards Navy radio towers on land. The pilots were told to switch the devices on, but they either didn't hear the message or they didn't acknowledge it. So mm, that's kind of weird. That is weird. Especially what, if they suspected they were going yeah, the wrong way. Yeah. What really happened to Flight 19? The most likely scenario is that the planes just ran out of gas and ditched in the ocean somewhere off the coast of Florida. Yeah, it just sounds like a but unfortunate circumstance. When he radioed in and says, I, I see white water, or we're entering white water, so, somewhere along the line that got changed and that they were entering like a white mist or something. Mm. You know what I mean? A lot of people thought... What does he mean by white water, though? I think that's maybe part of the ocean, where he can see that it's like a different part of the ocean. Mm. Like, based on the the depth, you can see like a different coloring on the water. That's my guess. Yeah, his exact quote was, um, We think we may be about 225 miles northeast of base. It looks like we are entering white water. We're completely lost. And entering white water, I think, means a part of the ocean that's like a different depth that he would know that they're not where they're supposed to be. Hmm. But people have taken that to mean that he's entering like a cloud or a time vortex or right. something weird like that. Yeah. So the Flight 19 one is, is some of it's weird, like the compass stuff, but we'll get kind of to that. And uh, But it was just that he didn't know where he was and led his men farther away from land instead yeah. of towards land and they to ditched and they haven't found any traces of the planes and people are constantly looking for traces of the planes yeah but we still haven't i mean there are planes we like airliners we still yeah. haven't found and yeah. these are small yep. like yeah military planes and and like researching this there's a lot of stuff that is mistaken to be in the bermuda triangle and it's not mm. like one of these according to the blog quote bermuda triangle mystery and this one was actually, I was like really kind of into this one. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> in 1991, there was a Grumman, Grumman Cougar jet piloted by a man named John Verdi. He and trained co-pilot Paul Lucaris were on a flight towards Tallahassee. Verdi's, Verdi, Verdi, Verdi's voice cracked over the receiver at the flight center asking for permission to fly over it. Permission was quickly granted. The jet was then seen ascending from 25,000 feet to its cruising altitude of 29,000 feet. All seemed normal. Verdi had not yet rogered reaching his new altitude. Radar continued to track the cougar until, for some unknown reason, it simply vanished. Verdi and Lucaris answered no more calls to respond. They had sent no mayday to to indicate a problem. Readouts of the radar observations confirmed the unusual. The cougar had not been captured at all descending or falling to the sea. It had just vanished while climbing. It simply faded away. One sweep, they were there. The next, they were gone. And mm. that's weird. That, that is weird. They're tracking it, like going up, and then all of a sudden it's gone. And that gets lumped in with the Bermuda Triangle stuff. But according to this blog, it turns out that this didn't happen in the Bermuda Triangle. It happened in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Louisiana. Oh. <laughs> so, like, a lot of the stuff people like fudge somebody probably one day was like oh that sounds like bermuda triangle type yeah, stuff and then just, it got yeah, lumped in there yeah. i mean there were some weird cases uh flight 441 was a huge super constellation model carrier that belonged to the u.s navy now if it were flight 411 <laughs> that would be different <laughs> the aircraft was said to be one of the greatest successes of its time and was touted that it could cross the atlantic in eight and a half hours on October 30th, 1954, Flight 441 took off from the 
Patuxent River Naval Air Station bound for Lajares in the Azores. Wow, that's a whole lot of words I can't pronounce. <laughs> it was carrying 42 passengers, all naval officers and their families who were transported overseas. Initially, there was regular communication received from the aircraft. Around 11.30 p.m., the pilot radioed in a regular report confirming its location. At that time, the aircraft was about 400 miles off the coast, and that was the last time the aircraft was ever seen or heard from. The weather was somewhat typical for the North Atlantic at this time of year. No snowing, no thunderstorms, no turbulence. But Flight 441, capable of attaining great altitudes, could have easily risen above any kind of bad weather. Plus, the aircraft had a weather radar installed on it, which was capable of giving forewarning if there was any bad weather conditions detected. The experienced pilot certainly would have avoided any bad weather based on the indications from this radar. And the plane just vanished. Hmm. The list of cargo carried by the aircraft included 111 life vests, 46 exposure suits, 660 paper cups, and five life rafts. Life I feel rafts. like they had everything to survive at the Well, disposal. the thing is, though, that all these float in water. So if the plane blew out of the air or if it crashed or something, this would have been scattered all over the ocean right. water. And... You know, if it's simply like nosedived into the water without breaking off, the pilot should have had enough time to send an SOS or to do something, but nothing seems to happen. Uh, it was just weird that this plane was gone, and if it would have hit the it water... It was last seen going up. No, that was the other plane. Oh, this okay. was a plane that was just crossing over, okay. and it, there should have been some trace of it. Like, the 660 paper cups should have been floating on the top of the water. They're probably still there. Uh, probably. If they're, if they're in there. So here's what the Board of Investigation reported about the pilot and the weather. It said, quote, Lieutenant Leonard has been flying in the North Atlantic routes for the past two years, and it is thought that he was very familiar with this kind of weather. His choice of 17,000 feet altitude for this flight was a good one. According to the weather cross-section, 19,000 feet would have been an even better altitude. At any rate, he should have been on top for the most part, except for occasional rain or storm buildups. It must be pointed out that the R-7V1 was equipped with airborne radar and is always used when flying in this kind of weather. The possibility of structural failure during transit of frontal weather cannot be discounted in this accident, but the possibility appears remote. Lieutenant Leonard was well-trained in thunderstorm penetration speed and technique. It is thought that if he did enter a thunderstorm, he would have entered at the correct speed and he would have flown the up and down drafts without fighting them. The weather that Lieutenant Leonard was thought to have been subjected to was not beyond the capabilities of the craft, nor was it thought to be beyond his own flying capabilities. It is the opinion of the board that the craft met with a sudden and violent force that rendered the aircraft no longer airworthy and was thereby beyond the scope of human endeavor to control. The force that rendered the aircraft uncontrollable is unknown. Hmm. So that's weird that that plane just disappears. Yeah, and they sent, pe they sent people out looking for it and... The life jackets, the life boats, the paper cups should have been, there should have been a ton of debris, debris mm -hmm. on the water. And there was nothing. So that is that weird. That is weird. Yep. And it's still happening. A news bulletin from New Year's Day of this year, like just this past New Year's, says, quote, quote, the Coast Guard suspended its search Friday at approximately noon for an overdue vessel between the Bahamas and South Florida. Coast Guard District 7 received a report Tuesday that a blue-and-white 29-foot Mako Cuddy cabin vessel, last known to be departing Bimini, Bahamas, Monday, did not arrive as expected. The vessel and people were reported to be en route to Lake Worth, Florida. The Coast Guard and partner agencies searched approximately 17,000 square miles, roughly double the size of Massachusetts, for about 84 hours. No trace of the craft or its occupants were found. How does it just go missing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. 
With the um, technology we have today, you think we'd find some trace, trace of it, especially if they searched seventeen thousand square miles, right? You know, so I not don't know. Not a piece of debris, nothing. No, this is so, a ship, though, right? Yeah, not a. Yeah, there was another interesting one that I read that I started writing, but then it's going to be a mini mystery because it was actually really interesting. So yeah, I mean, it's just like there are. I mean, but, I understand these waters are vast. Yeah, but. You still think a trace of something would be found. Exactly. Especially that one with the life jackets and all that stuff that they should have been yeah. floating for ever, you yeah. know? So I don't know. I'm. But it, it's just there is weird stuff that happens. But going back to that Kush guy that wrote that book, he argued that many claims of Gaddis and subsequent writers were exaggerated, dubious, or unverifiable. Kutch's research revealed a number of inaccuracies and inconsistencies between Berlitz's account and statements from eyewitnesses, participants, and others involved in the initial incidents. Kutch noted cases where pertinent information went unreported, such as the disappearance of around-the-world yachtsman David Crowhurst, which Berlitz had presented as a mystery despite clear evidence to the contrary. Another example was the ore carrier recounted by Berlitz as lost without a trace three days out of an Atlantic port when it had been lost three days out of port with the same name in the Pacific Ocean. So it wasn't, mm. yeah. Cush also argued that a large percentage of the incidents that sparked allegations of the Triangle's mysterious influence actually occurred well outside of it. Often his research was simple. He would review period newspapers of the dates of reported incidents and find reports on possibly relevant events like unusual weather that were never mentioned in the disappearance stories. So, do you think the more modern stories have that same element, though, of like being blown out of proportion? Probably and... because of the Bermuda Triangle has this aura about it that, yeah. you know, it if it's not mysterious, people kind of make it mysterious. Because so, you're finding the stories on websites that talk about the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. If we just went to like the original local yep. news story, it yep. probably wouldn't have the same sensationalized stuff uh, attached to it. Cush finally came up with a couple conclusions saying that, quote, the number of ships and aircraft reported missing in the area was not significantly greater, proportionally speaking, than in any other part of the ocean. Totally get that. Mm-hmm. In an area frequented by tropical cyclones, the number of disappearances that did occur were, for the most part, neither disproportionate, unlikely, or mysterious. Furthermore, Berlitz and other writers would often fail to mention such storms or even represent the disappearances having happened in calm conditions when meteorolog- meteorological when weather re- records <laughs> clearly contradicted this. So they would say, no, it was completely calm that day. It wasn't completely calm that day. Mm-hmm. The numbers themselves had also been exaggerated. Evagi- <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> what? The, num- the numbers themselves had been exaggerated by sloppy research. A boat's disappearance, for example, would be reported, but its eventual, if belated, return to port may not have been reported. Some disappearances, in fact, never even happened. One plane crash was said to have taken place in 1937 off Daytona Beach, Florida, in front of hundreds of witnesses. A check of all the local papers revealed nothing. The legend of the Bermuda Triangle, he says, is a manufactured mystery perpetuated by writers who either purposely or unknowingly made use of misconceptions, faulty reasoning, and sensationalism. Hmm. But is it all BS? There was Maybe a, the true I don't know. sort of mysterious ones are much smaller in number than we think, though. There was an interesting website I went to called The Quester Files, and this person is like a hardcore researcher. Believer? Yeah. And he says, quote, By the time I had started my research in 1990, the Bermuda Triangle had fallen into total disrepute. People believed that it had been, quote, solved, or that it had just been sensationalism. The Bermuda Triangle was the legend that a section of ocean on this planet off the southeast coast of the United States and into the Gulf of Mexico was inherently mysterious, causing ships and planes to vanish. 
It was the only topic out of the pantheon of those great and famous world mysteries to be subjected to the ignominy. Ignominy? What? Igna, ignominy. The ignominy of having been <laughs> forgotten. What's Many, a synonym for that word? Ignominy. I-G-N-O-M-I-N-Y. Ignominy? Ignominy. Of having what does been, it mean? Oh, my <laughs> Public shame. Oh, wow. Shame. Okay. I could have just said shame. Shame, yeah. yeah. Uh, bah, bah, bah. fancy words. Come on. Um, it was the only topic out of the pantheon of those great and famous world mysteries to be subjected to the shame of having been forgotten. Many had fired the imagination of the 20th century, but the Bermuda Triangle, the most documented of all, ironically fell victim to the claim that it had been exposed. It was a false claim. The Bermuda Triangle suffered the shame for a couple of reasons. Unlike the other tantalizing and often bloated 20th century mysteries, UFOs, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, ancient aliens, etc., the Bermuda Triangle is not subjective. It does not rely on claims of someone having seen a flying saucer or some hairy hominid. Its mystery is tangible. It is based on ships and planes that really existed and people aboard them who are real people. They are gone. There is no question that they have vanished. Paradoxically, this opened the door to debunking. Some writers were sloppy and listed ships and planes that had not vanished. Some had just vanished in hurricanes. It was not difficult for skeptics to claim the triangle was all hokum. Just claim that a storm was responsible. Find some small point that indicated it was an accident or suspect pilot error and be done with it. The paranormal are ghosts and angels and demons or what have you. There is nothing like this responsible for the disappearance of thousands of tons of ships of aircraft. They have truly vanished and in fair weather. As such, the Bermuda Triangle is quite true. So this person says that it is true. I mean, mm -hmm. he's like a hardcore triangle researcher. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Theories. Okay. A bunch of theories. Theory number one, pirates. <laughs> I guess that pirates could... Pirates could have been... Disappear a bunch of bodies. <laughs> pirates could have... And ships. They could have stolen and ships. Debris. I doubt that they would have, like, in 1945, hijacked planes in the air. But pirates is one of the theories, is that this is all due to pirates, but I could see that being back in the olden days, mm -hmm. you know. There are still pirates today. Well, yeah, there are, but I don't know. I mean, they wield guns instead of hooks. Oh, I know. I see YouTube videos <laughs> of people on the ship firing guns at the pirates That's that are crazy. firing guns at them. So it's it's possible, but I don't think that part, like modern pirates, are they even like around in that part of the world? Like I in, don't know. Like off the coast of Florida? But Maybe? I mean, back in the olden days, I could see them, you know, making someone walk the plank or whatever, but... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about pirates. pirates. I don't either. But that, that's one of the theories is that pirates, maybe it's a small percentage, but I don't know. Hmm. Theory number two, of course, this is the big one. It's all bunk or it's overstated. And people attribute human error. And this area is one of the most highly trafficked for amateur pilots and sailors and one of the most heavily traveled shipping lanes in the world. Statistically, more traffic leads to more accidents sure. and disappearances, and it has some of the deepest trenches. So that makes sense. I mean, this is the busiest. When you combine bad weather with water, I just feel like it's a circumstance that the risk goes up. Yeah, that's like saying, like, you know, we said the Texas analogy before, but that's like me saying mm -hmm. there's far more traffic accidents on this section of the interstate than there is on this little dead-end road in right. the country and because there's more traffic there, of course. Although the the things that happen during fair weather, yeah, are, are yep. I don't know. So another theory, of course, UFOs, mm. and one that gets tied into this again is Christopher Columbus. 
An entry in his log on October 11th, 1492 reads, quote, The land was first seen by a sailor called Rodrigo de Trina. Although the admiral at 10 o'clock that evening, standing on the quarterdeck, saw a light, but so small a body he could not affirm it to be land. Calling to Pero, groom of the king's wardrobe, <laughs> I, need a, I need somebody to take care of my wardrobe. <laughs> he told him that he saw a light and bid him look that way, which he did and saw it. He did the same to Rodrigo Sanchez of Segovia, who the king and queen had sent with their, squad, with their squadron as a comptroller. I didn't know they had comptrollers back then. <laughs> but he was unable to see it from his perch. What the does a comptroller do? I don't know. I don't either. Okay. <laughs> the, the admiral again perceived it once or twice, appearing like the light of a wax candle moving up and down, which some thought an indication of land, but the admiral held it was certain that it was not land. So they, you know, that that bobbing light, the the wax candle, it's, it's always called a UFO. So hmm. people are always saying Christopher Columbus saw UFOs. So I don't know. And again, another entry on September 15th, 1492 says, quote, they sailed that day and night, 27 leagues and a few more on the route west. And on this night, at the beginning of it, they saw, quote, a marvelous branch of fire fall from the sky into the sea, distant from them four or five leagues. And that could have been a meteor. Sure. So it's not necessarily a UFO. Right. But a lot of people tie in UFOs with the Bermuda Triangle stuff. Mm-hmm. And I guess, but I don't know. I don't know that I buy that. I don't know. No. Is it possible they encounter UFOs out there? Sure. Are they disappearing a bunch of ships and planes? Probably not. Like, <laughs> no, are they like... Maybe they're pirates on the UFOs. Or, UF, or alien pirates. Ooh. Little eye patch. I don't know. I just don't... I don't... I Like the UFO thing I don't get, but that's all, that's tied in all the time with the Bermuda Triangle, different diff- disappearances. I mean, think of how many pilots are admitting now to seeing UFOs. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it's just... You're up there. You're going to see stuff. Yeah. So I don't know. UFO is a possibility. Maybe. I don't know. Another possibility, as we mentioned earlier, Atlantis. And this comes from the Truly Traveled website. It says, quote, Some people believe that Atlantis one lay deep beneath the Bermuda Triangle and argued that the remnants of the intense energy crystals that were once used to fuel the city are now interfering with airplane and ship electronics, causing them to go haywire. And this is going to be a, a mini-mystery, or we're going to talk about this in the, like an Atlantis one. Dr. Ray Brown claims to have stumbled upon a pyramid-like structure with smooth, mirror-like finish while scuba diving near the Barry Islands in the Bahamas in 1970. Swimming inside, he is said to have found the interior to be completely free of coral and algae and illuminated by some unknown light source. In the center of it was a sculpture of human hands holding a four-inch crystal sphere, above which was suspended a red gem at the end of a brass rod. And this is the Atlantis crystal that some people apparently have. That, they have it. Yeah, somebody claims to have it. Okay. Yeah, so that the, the gems are what powered Atlantis, and it's speculated that one is still down there, and it's interfering, interfering, it's interfering with compasses and stuff. Poo poo. Yeah, Chris does not. <laughs> Chris does not buy the Atlantis explanation. No. Another explanation is something called vile vortices. Vile vortices are areas around the Earth where it's said that an unusually high number of planes, ships, and people go missing. There are supposedly 12 of these sites, and they include the Bermuda Triangle, the Devil's Sea, and Easter Island. A July 15, 2014 article on StrangerDimensions.com called, quote, 12 Vile Vortices, the Geometric Anomalies of Ivan Sanderson, 
The article says, quote, These 12 locations are equidistant from each other, equally divided between the Tropic of Capricorn and the Tropic of Cancer, and represent areas where strange disappearances, phenomena, or electromagnetic aberrations are said to occur. Two of the vile vortices lie at the north and south poles, and collectively they form an iso... an ico... icosahedron. Icosahedron around Earth, which is something like the 20-sided die from role-playing games. You know what I mean? It's, it's got yeah. like that geometric mm-hmm. around... Like, if you put that around Earth, that these vortices are, like, equidistant from each other. Okay. You know? It's mm-hmm. hard, to, it's hard mm-hmm. to picture this. Yeah. But... It's saying that when you put this geometric <laughs> geometric figure over the earth, these places is where more stuff happens. Okay. You know. The so tr- they're not saying this this geometric thing exists. They're saying if it did. No, some people believe it does exist. Because oh. they say that one of these spots is over the Bermuda Triangle. The other one is over the Devil's Sea. Did I hit pause on accident? Because you're not <laughs> no, even moving. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for this. <laughs> I thought yeah, the Kirk devil's, got stuck the, in the, the, this, <laughs> the, the Matrix. The Devil's Sea and Easter Island and stuff like that. That okay. You know, that some people really buy the vile vortices idea. Hmm. The term vile vortices itself was first used by Ivan Sanderson, Scottish biologist and founder of the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained, in an article titled, quote, The Twelve Devil's Graveyards Around the World. In it, he explored areas where airplanes and ships had vanished, highlighting the points where disappearances seemed most common. According to Wikipedia, the article was published in a 1972 issue of the magazine Saga, but the idea of these vile vortices has persisted to this day. Are these vortices real? Uh, The idea has been met with plenty of skepticism, as you can imagine. Some of the locations are reportedly fudged, you know, to match up with others and form the perfect Mm, 20-sided dice. Yeah. Because I have a hard time saying icosahedron. Some of the disappearances have also ended with perfectly ordinary explanations. Sanderson himself believed that the anomalous activity surrounding these areas may be due to electromagnetic disturbances caused by hot and cold air. This may have connections to the so-called ley lines. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what this, like the ley lines, the vile vortices are like the ley lines, but in like a geometric pattern around the planet. But are there ley lines that go through the Bermuda Triangle? I'm not 100% sure. These like the vile vortices are said to be areas connected around Earth that exist in alignment with each other and which hold mystical significance. Mystical. (laughs) (laughs) They are are straight paths that connect ancient monuments such as Stonehenge. (laughs) (laughs) It's just funny how you said that. Mystical. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having a hard time reading today. Give me a break. Well, I can't hit record, so we're we're even. Yeah, we're good. This episode is recording. I would like to reassure okay. you. <laughs> Good, because I was just kind of like, oh boy. Another theory is electronic fog slash wormholes. Electronic fog? Yeah. I've heard of wormholes. Electronic fog and wormholes. Okay. And this, uh, I remember this was a site or a post by somebody called Jenny the She-Wolf. Well. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Jenny the She-Wolf. I don't have the person's first name in here. It's not Jenny? No. It's somebody named Gernan. Gernan. According to Gernon, he departed from Andros Island in the Bahamas at 3 o'clock p.m. on December 4, 1970, on his Bonanza A36, along with his father and his father's business associate, on a flight that took them through the Bermuda Triangle on their way to Bimini. Along the way, the plane was engulfed by a strange cloud that appeared to be following the plane's movements forward and upward in altitude. 
they eventually broke free from the cloud, only to come upon another similar cloud a short distance ahead of them. The exterior of the cloud appeared white, fluffy, and harmless, so Gurnon continued it continued it. The exterior of the cloud appeared white, fluffy, and harmless, so Gurnon continued ahead, but once inside, the interior was revealed to be dark with flashes of light, indicating that they had entered a dangerous electrical storm. That's weird. That is weird. It's creepy, too. Yeah. At 3.27 p.m., Gurnon turned the plane 135 degrees heading south in an attempt to break free from the cloud. At this point, he radioed in to Miami to notify them of their change in course. As Gurnon attempted to flee the second cloud, he discovered to his dismay that the first cloud he escaped now appeared to be connected to the second cloud, forming a tunnel around the plane that appeared to be between 10 and 15 miles long. Gurnon could see clear blue sky at the other end of this tunnel and decided the safest course of action would be to carry on forward through the tunnel until he got to the other end. While inside the cloud tunnel, Gurnon noted that there were spiraling lines swirling in counterclockwise motion along the interior. As the plane progressed towards the opening, the tunnel seemed to be continually shrinking in both length and diameter. What seemed like a 10-mile tunnel at first that should have taken roughly three minutes to pass through became a one-mile-long tunnel that they passed through in 20 seconds. As the plane crossed the edge of the tunnel, its passengers experienced a sensation of weightlessness that lasted about 10 seconds. Instead of the clear blue skies that Gurnon first saw at the end of the tunnel, they were met with blank gray haze all around them. No sky, no ocean, no horizon. Nothing but grayness. Freaky. Yeah. Gurnon described it as resembling a thick fog, except for the fact that visibility appeared to extend roughly two miles. When they attempted to read their locations via their magnetic and electronic navigational system, they discovered that the instruments were malfunctioning. Gurnon contacted Miami Air Traffic Control again to seek their assistance in identifying their location via radar. However, Miami claimed that there were absolutely no planes visible on the radar anywhere between Miami, Bimini, and Andros. Gurnon did his best to steer the plane towards his destination with nothing to go on but his own mental compass. After a few minutes, the Miami radio controller announced that he had just spotted, just spotted, <laughs> that he had just spotted, <laughs> spotted a plane directly over Miami Beach heading west. Gurnon did not believe that the plane the controller saw was theirs because they had only been flying for 34 minutes and there was no way he could have reached Miami in that amount of time. It was then that the gray fog around them began to dissipate in a strange way that Gurnon described as horizontal ribbons across the sky that gradually expanded until the fog was gone. That's creepy. Mm -hmm. With the fog gone, he could see that he was, in fact, right over Miami Beach. With their visibility and navigational equipment restored, Gurnon landed the plane at Palm Beach International Airport. The entire flight lasted a total of 48 minutes. Gurnon was baffled by the experience, not only because of the weather and instrumental anomalies, but also the apparent loss of time. Even on direct flights in the past, the trip from Andros to Palm Beach would take a minimum of 75 minutes in his plane, and this flight was anything but direct. So when did this happen? Um, 70, 1970. I feel like Josh Gates covered this one. He, he might have, because this I is a big one. I remember the tunnel yes, and like this is, the... This is like a big one. Because they did like a reenactment yes, of it, and yeah. I think he even interviewed the guy. Yeah, but... You know, the, the, the air, time people, loss is weird. People from the air traffic controller said that they just remember the guy like asking if they saw his plane or something, and he didn't sound like he was panicked, mm -hmm. and he didn't say anything weird. So, is this is the guy? I uh, did he seem legit in, when they interviewed him about it? I think so, but weren't there passengers on the plane too? Didn't they claim to have yeah. experiences? Yeah. Hmm. But he says that they got there far faster than they should have. He that's said it was the part like they went through freaky. like a time wormhole. Yeah. You know? If so that's true. I mean, yeah, if it's true. If it's true. The cloud stuff is freaky. Like that, that old thing freaks me out for some reason. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. 
why. But right. but that is a thing is that people call it electronic fog and it's basically like a wormhole. Hmm. Like there's nothing creepier than like like Twilight Zone episodes or or whatever where they enter like a cloud or something and they come out and there's like nothing. There's right. like nothing there. It's like your worst fear. <laughs> yeah, that's like it's like just <laughs> bizarre. So that is one of the possibilities, I guess. Okay. Another possibility, weather slash ocean stuff. And that's totally possible. Water spouts, rogue waves, mm-hmm. the Gulf Stream itself. There's the Sargasso Sea. I think that's part of like where the Bermuda Triangle is. And that's like a rotating thing where like if something disappears over here, it's going to rotate around to over here. Right. You know, so it might look like it disappeared here when it didn't. So well, there's tons of possible weather or slash. And weather is only so predictable. Yeah. You know what I yep. mean? I mean, a tree fell on my house yeah. this week. So yep. things just happen very suddenly and can take a turn very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Especially over the you, water. You know, you know that all too well now. Yeah. And I feel like weather over the water is always yes. a bit more yep. dangerous yep. and unpredictable. 100%. And another big one that's been like written off as the reason is methane. And yeah, that's like a, that was like a big one. I remember years ago, somebody saying that they basically said that that's what it's about. Well, methane is one of the contributors to like greenhouse gases. So we know we have plenty of it. Yeah. Uh, up in the atmosphere. But there's a, there's tons of craters inside the seafloor mm-hmm. around that area that, that can vent enormous blowouts of gas. Mm. I know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> July 16th, a June 16th, 2016 article on trulytravel.com called, quote, Best Theories Behind the Mystery of the Bermuda Triangle says, One of the most interesting scientific theories for the disappearance of ships in a triangle was proposed by an American geochemist, Dr. Richard MacGyver. MacGyver? (laughs) That's Swiss Army Knife. Isn't the guy who played him, wasn't his name Richard Dean? Dean Anderson, yeah. Richard Dean Anderson. I love MacGyver. When I was a kid, I wanted to be MacGyver. According to MacGyver, there are pockets... <laughs> I can't say that without thinking about that now. <laughs> According to MacGyver, it's M-C-I-V-E-R. Mm. According to MacGyver, there are pockets of trapped methane gas deep beneath the surface of the Bermuda Triangle, which are just waiting to be unlocked by seismic activity or underwater landslides. If unleashed, the theory goes, this methane gas would bubble to the surface, reducing the density of the water. Any ship in that patch of water mm. would lose its buoyancy and sink like instantly. Crazy. And I, I get that. Like if the bubbles are going to the surface, your ship is going to sink. It's like a sinkhole. They did, I think they did this on Mythbusters. Huh. That if your ship is there and they, they pump bubbles up from underneath it, the ship sinks. Weird. Because it, it's not flat and buoyant. You have all those bubbles coming up and hmm. yeah. Okay. It gets worse. In theory, if enough of the flammable gas bubbled up to the surface and got high enough up into the air, it could potentially stall an airplane engine or even be ignited by an engine spark. That, it's a, <laughs> Chris just is not buying that it. high, though, yeah. up in the sky? Like, that 26,000 feet or whatever. it would dissipate and I don't know. It's important to note that the Bermuda Triangle is far from the only place on the planet where methane exists. It's not even the area with the highest concentration. But it's possible that this could... But because you have more flights going over it, as opposed to the other places, it might happen more often to flights there. I feel like it, I, I I could buy it taking some ships. Yeah. I don't know if I buy the plane piece. Yeah. No. Unless they're flying really low over the water. Yeah. I am not a scientist. Another theory, <laughs> magnetic variation. This theory proposed by the Coast Guard over 30 years ago states, quote, the majority of disappearances can be attributed to the area's unique environmental features. First, the Devil's Triangle is one of the two places on Earth that a magnetic compass does point towards true north. Normally, it points towards magnetic north. The difference between the two is known as compass variation. 
a number of variation changes by as much as 20 degrees as one circumnavigates the Earth. I mean, that's a lot. It is a lot. If this compass variation or error is not compensated for, a navigator could find himself far off course and in deep trouble. But it is weird that compasses stop working a lot of times there, but that could be because of some... It's just magnetic. Yeah, it could be like where that section of the Earth is. There could be something yeah. something off kilter with the magnetic. Magnetic variation is a thing, but I think that if you're a good enough pilot, you're going to be able to adjust for the difference between magnetic north and, and north. Maybe not back in... No, maybe not back in the day. Further in history, yeah, yeah. Possibly not. Modern, yes. Yeah. And the last theory I got is, of course, the government. <laughs> a number of theorists claim that the American government's AUTEC base, or the Atlantic Undersea Test and Evaluation Center, is located on the Bahamas' Andros Island, right in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle, where the Navy tests out subs, weapons, and sonar. And some of these people believe that the government is working with aliens, and that is a testing ground for reverse-engineered alien technology. And that's what's accidentally bringing the planes and ships down, I guess. That yeah. they're... So it's aliens again. Aliens and the government working together. Mm. So. I feel like the Coast Guard is on to something. The last theory. Well, yeah. Yeah. I but don't know that I, I believe I, aliens I think or lot. the government. So I'll end this with a quote and then we'll get to the what do you think. Okay. But I couldn't find a lot of quotes about the Bermuda Triangle, but I found one by Stephen King that mentions Sweet. it. Stephen King, one of my favorite authors, says, mm-hmm. quote, I simply think that there are things in this world that are relics. We have unsettling remnants of Atlantis. They have found things off Bermuda, great walls and things of that sort. This seems to indicate that there were races and cultures that went before us. And to me, that's an unsettling idea. Interesting. So, yeah, so totally get that. So what do you think, Bermuda <sighs> Triangle? I think more often than not, it's just cir- bad circumstances, yeah. bad weather. I, I think it's a combination of... Operator error. I think it's a combination of it being highly trafficked, like heavily trafficked. Yes. Like there's constantly planes and boats. I think it's a combination of that, of um, people fudging the facts to mm-hmm. fit stuff into the triangle, and and human error. I yeah. think a lot of it is human. But... That being said, there are some Maybe weird disappearances. Maybe there are a couple there. of weird ones, yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't think it's anywhere near as as powerful as people no. think it is. Or mysterious or... Would I be nervous flying over it? Probably. <laughs> I still would be for nervous flying over <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, maybe. But there you go. Bermuda Triangle. I, I'd be nervous flying over any ocean. <laughs> I'd be nervous just flying anywhere. Yeah. But yeah. 100%. Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle. What do you guys think? Yay or nay? I mean, at this point, it's pretty much been discredited. Yeah. That it's just nothing. Other than a, a a myth that was born out of these factually not so keen books in the seventies, right. yeah. So there you go. Cool. What do you guys think? Yeah, that was that was a hard read. I don't know. <laughs> what I need to do is more putting stuff in my own words instead of reading somebody else's yeah. words. That's what I do. Anytime I take yeah, um, I need to do research that. from someone, I try to rearrange it in my own yeah. words. A for plagiarism totally reasons, <laughs> but. Also, because reading someone else's yeah. stuff can be hard. Yep. Song choice first or question? Uh, why well, do, don't you look? Do you have the question ready? I do. I actually oh, looked. Yeah, I have dang. one question. Let's do I, a question. I, it is uh, music related, actually. Ooh. Are you ready? I'm ready. I feel like we've talked about this in little bits and chunks. The question says, hi, guys. I might be in a minority, but I love the music suggestions and questions. So my question to the both of you is... What was the best concert you attended? What was the worst concert you attended? And what band, past or present, is on your concert bucket list? 
I can go first because I've been thinking about this okay. because I saw the question yesterday. The Cheater. best concert I attended, <laughs> but this gives you time to think about yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. I've attended a lot of good concerts. Blue October always puts a, such a good concert. Um, I remember when I was dating Natalie, we went to see, we went to Chicago to see the band The Format, and one of the bands that opened for them was a band called Steel Train, and we were just blown away by how good steel train like they're still like an amazing but they're not together because some of their band members and i believe some of the format combined to join that to make that group called fun oh oh really yeah but steel train was so good but if i had to pick and i've talked about this on here in the past i believe but i went with Rhonda and Brittany and their friend ashley to milwaukee to see fallout boy and I like Followed Boy, but I'm not like a huge fan. But I was blown away by how amazingly good they were okay. in concert. So if I had to pick the best one, it would be Followed Boy because they they are talented as hell. They okay. they are. And I know they're not everybody's cup of tea, but they just did so good in concert. And like if a band that I'm so so about is great in concert, it immediately makes me like them. Totally. If there's a band I like that sucks in yep. concert, Lose and that's my next one, the worst concert I ever went to, I don't remember what the other band, who the other bands were. It was like, it was in the 80s. I don't remember who the other bands were, but I went to Green Bay to see the band Tesla. Oh. And they... I always like their music. Are they terrible they, in person? Th- no, they were jerks. They were like <gasps> such jerks. Really? Yeah, they were like just asses. They really mm. were. They were like really like snotty on stage and yelling at everybody in the audience and and yeah so that totally soured me on tesla so i have not liked tesla after that concert because they annoyed me so they were just like so negative and just a lot of like like they didn't want to be there they felt like people weren't up dancing enough and cheering enough and they were just like on a better show they were snotty so (laughs) i don't like tesla because of that to Mm. this day i don't like tesla because they were so so snotty in concert so that's and that's a big thing for me like if you're if you're like that i'm not gonna like your stuff anymore yeah but my bucket list is is always gonna be snow patrol because i love the band snow patrol okay and they come to chicago sometimes but i'm not gonna drive to chicago you know (laughs) (laughs) you're like i drive down to sheboygan oh that's funny you know but i would love like snow patrol is one of my favorite bands and i would just love to see snow patrol in cool. uh, in person like a couple like last year the year before they opened for ed sheeran at the uh, brewer stadium but i didn't want to go down there for that because it was going to be crowded and stuff you know like then that's like Summerfest. like i don't like going to Summerfest because Summerfest no. is so crowded i used and, to love Summerfest, but no. i'm too old now yeah <laughs> just the parking stresses me out yeah so but no that's my best was probably followed boy my worst was tesla and my bucket list dream concert is snow patrol okay this is hard because I have two. Is it going to be fish? No. No, I've been <laughs> to so many of those. Like, it'd be hard to pick. No, mine, oh, I, this is tough. Best concert ever. I'm like, I'm just, I'm torn between Eric Clapton and Prince. Oh, I'm, I'm jealous you got to see both of them. I know. Holy crap. I know. Eric Clapton is a big one. Um, I'm going to go with Prince, though, I think, because... I knew it was going to be good, but I was blown away by how talented he Say what was. you want about Prince. He was talented oh as Oh, my hell. God. He was he so really talented. Was. And he did like a whole acoustic set. That was his encore. Yeah. I'm getting the chills, actually. <laughs> but he played several instruments on the stage throughout the show, and then he just sat there with an acoustic guitar but for the was, encore, and it was amazing. Like, that's like when uh, Rhonda 
myself and I think Brittany came and some other friends went to Green Bay to see John Mayer. Like he blew me oh, away with how so good talented. he was. Like he just he sat, he sat on the underrated... edge of the stage with his guitar and it was like, he was yeah. so, you know, he's, he's granted he's kind of douchey. He's gotten better. Yeah. But I he's, follow him on he's Instagram. super talented. And I, I can see highly... Prince, Prince is like that too, where, yeah. you know, because there's some bands that are so good. Like, like one that I always go to is like angels and airwaves with Tom DeLonge. Like, mm. like, their their albums are so good, but he even admits that they suck in concert. Oh, that's funny. And it's like Blink One Eighty Two. Like yeah. I love Blink One Eighty Two, but they're not good in concert. Yeah, John Mayer is a highly underrated guitarist. People yes. don't understand yeah. how talented he yeah. is with the guitar. Yeah, but Prince would be amazing. I would say Prince. It's hard to pick between Eric Clapton and Prince, but I'm gonna say Prince is my best show I've ever been to. Um, worst, and this was we went to see Soul Coughing. Yeah, but the they were the opening act for another band and the band was Everclear and we stayed for like two songs and we're like this is horrible (laughs) do you remember I remember if I remember right Ashley the one that I talked about that came with us to uh followed boy that's like her favorite band like she loves Everclear they did Santa Monica right uh I, I can't. Re- I, yeah, I mean, who they, did the Santa Monica song? They they do a lot of stuff that was on the radio, but they're they have a lot of like really hardcore stuff. No, maybe it's somebody else. Ever Santa Monica? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a fan, so I don't I don't really know their song. Who am I thinking of? Who does the song Santa Father Monica? of Mine? That's yeah. Everclear. Yes. Well, they they weren't playing stuff like that. It was like so loud and just obnoxious. And it could have been, we were at the Majeska in Milwaukee. Maybe the sound was bad, but it sounded great for soul coughing. <laughs> we stayed for like a song and we're like, we're out of here. It was terrible. I love their song, Santa Monica. Um, And what was the third? A bucket list? Yeah. Who's on my bucket list? Past or present? Like who would you, who's one band or person you would love? I would love to see Wolfpack. I've, I've recommended them on here yeah. before. Yep. Um, I would love to see Wolfpack. That cool. would be, that would be an experience, I think. Cool. And speaking of music, it's our song oh, selections. Yeah. That's funny. Our category for today was a song that you love that was in a commercial. Mm-hmm. And I thought that you weren't going to like this because I thought this one was kind of tough. There's like five or six songs that I could have went I've with. I discovered some great songs so did, from so commercials. Yeah. Do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, the one that I picked, and again, it's a twofer because I have a crush on the, <laughs> the girl that sings. And, sure, and sure. It, is a band called Geowolf. Oh, I've heard of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a song, Saltwater. Okay. Do you know it? No. What's it, the commercial? It's from Corona Beer. Okay. And it's one of those songs that you can say say it, but then as soon as you hear like the beginning part, you're going to be like, I totally remember that from the yeah. Corona commercial. Okay. But I just love that song. It's like such a, it's like a road trip in, like a road trip in summer kind of song. It's just like real chill and just a good song. And the singer, girl is cute. So of course like that, but I just remember I'd <laughs> see bonus. that commercial a lot. And finally I'm like, I really like the song that they play in the commercial. So it is a song saltwater by the band Geo Wolf. All right. My song is called sound and color by the band Alabama shakes. And I'm not a big fan of their music in general. And this song is a real departure from what the kind of music they normally put out. It was for, and I had to Google it, but it was for an iPad pro commercial. Nice. And I feel like, like phones and like, 
technology songs in commercials are always really cool yeah. and like kind of trippy. For me, what I'm finding out is I like a lot of songs that are in pharmaceutical ads. Oh, funny. Which are always like kind of <laughs> mellow and yeah, yeah. Sure, of course. Yeah, but so. this this song's kind of has like a sexy feel to it. I don't know. It's cool, cool. but it's got like a chill, mellow feel to it. Sound and color by Alabama Shakes. Cool. We'll post. And those. actually, the lead singer, the female from Alabama Shakes was just on an episode of Spooked because she lived in a haunted house. That's cool. Fun little tie-in, yeah. That's awesome. We'll post these both in The Strangers. Yep. And I think that's it. Cool. And yeah, again, I apologize to our coffee supporters that you're not getting a video taste test. And I apologize week, I totally to my, our listeners for my horrible reading <laughs> in this episode. Uh, you think we'd get better as we go? <laughs> yeah, one would think, but that's not happening. Um, I think we're going the other way. Mm. So I think we're that's lovably it. flawed. We are very lovably <laughs> flawed. Um, and now we have to record our side, side session. session. And you can title this one when you put it on the flash drive Die, D I E. Okay. Yep. Great. I like to give Krista a hint of what it's mm-hmm. about. This one is Die. Got nothing. Yep. Okay. So I think that's it. Cool. It's been quiet upstairs. It's very quiet. He's probably sleeping. Yeah. He's, he didn't sleep well. Jim did not sleep well last night, so no. maybe he's taking a nappy poo. I, 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 or a bobo, I said as we uh, call it. in uh, The Strangers that, if you didn't see it, that there was a rumor that Corey and Jim might do an episode together next oh, yeah. season. Like some kind of sports, sports conspiracies, conspiracies or something? Because yeah. that is not our... No, I'll just sit back and go, uh-huh. That is not uh-huh. our bag. We'll oh, be wow. down there with them, but I think it would be cool <laughs> to have Corey and Jim each do a mystery. Yeah, so. that'd be cool. Look, look for that next season. I don't know if Jim would be down for like researching and doing them, but he'll be here for no, commentary. No, him, him and Corey could totally talk yeah. talk that through. You and I will be like, I don't know. Uh. I'll be working on something else on my computer. <laughs> but there are some cool sports. I'll be scrolling there are Instagram. Some cool sports conspiracies. So cool. I think that's it. Yeah. So um, next episode will be a preview of what the side session episodes are like. And then after that will be our 100th episode. I can't believe we Easy. made it to 100. I can't And like either. you said, you'd think we'd be better at this by you'd now. you think but so. Not. We're still <laughs> subpar. But, so please send us any emails, voicemails. Uh, you can hit me on the hip at my pager. I don't know. <laughs> um, you a drug dealer now? Yeah. <laughs> Got to do something. That's, his, that's Kurt's side session. That's, that's my side hustle. So, <laughs> but please send us some emails voicemails about it being our 100th episode and what the podcast means to you if anything yes i mean if we get nothing i guess we'll know that we should probably get better at this we'll work on that over a break (laughs) yeah so from now until our 100th episode in on september 12th, 12th i believe so from krista and i in the strange cellar until next time stay strange, strange.